Welcome back to Parkside Green's Bible Study. I'm Pastor Steve, just thrilled to be digging into God's Word with you. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 10 and chapter 11, and we will be seeing this week the high price of sin. Uh, I'm not sure what the biggest ticket item in your life is. Uh, people tend to spend a lot of money on weddings and cars and education with student loans and houses or rentals and you know, those items have high prices, right? They, they can add up to tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years. And what we're going to see as we study God's Word this week is that sin has an even higher price. Sin has an even higher price. So we're going to organize our study on the high price of sin around four headings. Number one, we'll look at too much of a good thing in chapter 10, verses 14 to 29. And then secondly, we'll take a look at the danger of disobedience in chapter 11, verses 1 to 8. Thirdly, we'll see the Lord punishes sin in chapter 11, verses 9 to 25. And lastly, we'll see that God controls the kingdom, chapter 11, verses 26 to 43. So we begin with too much of a good thing in chapter 10, verses 14 to 29. Verse 14 tells us that 666 talents of gold came to Solomon every year as internal revenue besides more gold that came from explorers and merchants and kings and governors. Now that 666 talents is roughly 50,000 pounds of gold, which at today's price, according to my calculations, is worth over a billion dollars every year, plus the additional gold from external sources. Well, what to do with all that gold? Solomon made 200 large shields, each of which had maybe seven and a half pounds of gold in them. And then he made 300 smaller shields, each of which had maybe about four pounds of gold in them. But even with all these gold shields, which remember, that's just a one-time cost to make them, they're only using up about 3,000 pounds of gold leaving Solomon 47,000 pounds of gold just in that year, plus all the other years. So what did Solomon do with the rest of the gold? Well, the answer is he made a great ivory throne, unlike any made in any other kingdom. And he included a dozen lions on the six steps leading up to the throne, and he overlaid it with the finest gold. The word gold, you may have noticed in your own study, appears ten times in just nine verses, right? It truly was Israel's golden age. And in fact, all of King Solomon's drinking vessels and the vessels for the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold, right? No drinking out of just silver cups. Even ordinary household items, the cups, were made of gold. Verses 21 and 27 tell us that silver and cedar were nothing during Solomon's reign. Not only that, but Solomon's fleet of ships took long voyages to faraway places such as Tarshish and brought back more gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks, right? Exotic animals that would be kind of like novelties in Israel. In these luxuries, Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Remember, God-given wisdom. And as people came to hear Solomon's wisdom, 
they brought presents of yet more gold and silver, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, and this kept happening year by year by year. We're also told that Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. He imported horses from Kew and from Egypt, buying them with his abundance of silver and then exporting them to other kings as well, kind of in the trade business. Well, on first glance, it looks like just the good times are rolling under Solomon. And certainly we do want to affirm with verse 24 that God gave Solomon great wisdom. But underneath, there's also something wrong with this picture. Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 to 20 clarifies for us what exactly is wrong with this picture. Deuteronomy 17 contains God's laws concerning Israel's kings. And it is stipulated that the king must be an Israelite, not a foreigner. Okay, check. And it says the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Uh-oh, right? <laughs> that seems to be exactly what Solomon has done. Acquiring many horses, specifically importing them from Egypt, and acquiring excessive silver and gold. So we now know that Solomon, it seems, has broken every law except one, and that one, about not acquiring many wives, is coming in the very next verse. The thing is, Solomon should have known better, because you notice in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19, that when the Israelite king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And that copy of the law written in his own handwriting shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and all these statutes and doing them so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, there was nothing wrong with having some horses or some gold, but in Solomon's case, it was too much of a good thing, kind of like chocolate or wine or exercise or vacation. Something that's good and beneficial in moderation can become harmful when it's excessive. God directly warned Israel's kings against these excesses and Solomon foolishly indulged, it seems. And we're going to see in our next section, there is a very real danger in disobedience. Well, not only did Solomon have too many horses from the wrong place and too much silver and gold, but he also had too many wives. Everything Solomon did, he did in a big way, right? Go big or go home, it seems like. Now, Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And I thank God for giving me Sue every single day. She's so good. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. But he who finds 700 wives and a harem of 300 concubines finds trouble. Especially because these women were from the nations concerning which the Lord said clearly 
to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. But rather than clinging to the Lord and his commandments, Solomon clung in love to Egyptian, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Hittite, and Sidonian women. And just as God warned in Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4, check it out, Solomon's many non-Israelite wives did turn away his heart. Solomon did not keep first things first because he did not keep the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me or beside me. Particularly in his older years, we are told, his wives, who were likely younger wives, turned away his heart after other gods. And Solomon's heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Right? Solomon had a heart problem. In fact, the term heart appears five times in just these three verses. Now, King David had his faults, to be sure, right? But he certainly never worshipped other gods because unlike his son Solomon, he was a man after God's own heart. It's almost hard to believe what we read in chapter 11, verses 5 to 8, that Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. He went after her, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil, evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord wholly as his father David had done. Right Then Solomon actually built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did, Solomon did, for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. What a tragedy. Oh, Solomon, <laughs> he failed to count the high price of sin. He played with fire and, and he got burned. He did not heed the danger of disobedience. And not only had Deuteronomy 17 spelled out God's laws for him, but when the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, God explicitly warned Solomon, if you turn aside, from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, then the Lord's going to bring disaster on them for abandoning the Lord their God and laying hold of other gods and worshiping them. Right? God requires wholehearted fidelity in a world of competing religions. That's a word for us. God requires wholehearted fidelity in a world of competing religions. Solomon, who started out asking for wisdom, he's ending up acting like a fool, right? Solomon, who began in obedience, ends in disobedience, maybe even slipping into it gradually. Solomon, who prayed about how the Lord is God and there is no other in chapter 8, now turns his heart away after other gods. Solomon, who built the temple to worship Yahweh, now builds a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did not heed the danger of disobedience, and consequently, the Lord punishes his sin. The Lord punishes his sin. Verse 9 tells us the Lord was angry with Solomon 
because his heart had turned away from the Lord, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him not to go after other gods. And it wasn't just like a one-time slip-up, oops. The Lord says in verse 11 that this had been Solomon's repeated practice to not keep his covenant. So the Lord promises to keep his side of the covenant, which is to tear the kingdom from Solomon and give it to one of Solomon's servants. God is faithful to his words of judgment as well as his promises of blessing. God is faithful to his words of judgment as well as his promises of blessing. It's exactly what we should expect based on all the warnings we have read along the way, right? But really the surprise here is that for the sake of David, the Lord was not going to do it during Solomon's lifetime, but would tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon's son. And it wouldn't be the whole kingdom, you see, but he'd allow Solomon's son to rule over one of the tribes for the sake of his servant David and his chosen city, Jerusalem. The Lord's going to leave Solomon on the throne, but there will be consequences for his sin. And the punishment begins as the Lord raises up two adversaries against Solomon. You remember back in chapter 5, verse 4, we read how the Lord had given Solomon rest on every side with no adversary, no misfortune. But now the Lord was raising up Hadad, the Edomite, to afflict Solomon from the south. And it was raising up Rezin in Damascus to afflict Solomon in the north. Now, the background of their stories is given in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And here uh, we know that Hadad married uh, Pharaoh's sister-in-law, Rezin, uh, kind of started up his own bandit army up by Damascus. But the main point is that whereas obedient younger Solomon had peace on all sides, now disobedient older Solomon has enemies on multiple fronts. The Lord is true to his covenant, and that means the Lord punishes sin. Lastly, we see God controls the kingdom. God controls the kingdom. Besides bringing Solomon trouble from outsiders, north and south, God brought Solomon trouble from an insider as well, Jeroboam. He was an able, industrious man whom Solomon put in charge of some of his construction in Jerusalem. But God had other designs for Jeroboam, right? When Jeroboam was outside the city limits, out in the open country, God sent him a prophet, Ahijah, who tore his new garment into 12 pieces as a way of symbolizing how the Lord was about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and give 10 tribes to Jeroboam, with one tribe left for Solomon's line. Uh, Apparently, Benjamin and Judah sort of assumed to be together there. God controls the kingdom, right? Just as God tore it out of Saul's hands and gave it to David back in 1 Samuel 15, so now God would tear it out of Solomon's hands and give almost all of it to Jeroboam. Why? Because Solomon and the people had forsaken the Lord. They were worshiping other gods. But Ahijah explains to Jeroboam, for David's sake, God would allow Solomon to rule until his death. And he'd take the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon's son, leaving him a tribe to rule. We see that God is just in punishing Solomon's sin, and God is faithful in preserving David's line. God is just in punishing Solomon's sin, and God is faithful in preserving David's line. Solomon's divided heart 
would lead to a divided kingdom of Israel. God controlled the kingdom, and God was the one who was making Jeroboam king. But the deal with Jeroboam was like the one with Solomon, right? If he'd listen to God and walk in his commandments, then God would be with him and establish his line. If you obey like David did, then you can have a sure house like David. But to be established, Jeroboam must emulate David, not Solomon. Well, Solomon apparently got wind of this private meeting, we don't know how, and he sought to kill Jeroboam, take out this potential competitor, who then not fled off to Egypt as a, like a political refugee. You see, Solomon could not thwart God's sovereign control of his kingdom, raising up and taking down kings as he pleased. Now, we don't have the book of the Acts of Solomon with further information, but we know that after his 40-year reign over all Israel, Solomon died and he was buried in Jerusalem with his son Rehoboam, in his place. And we're going to see more about that next week. Right, leaders are kind of coming and going at this point, but God is orchestrating it all because God controls the kingdom. Even the wisest earthly king does not live as God commands. For that, we need a perfect king. We need Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the Son of God par excellence to whom the Davidic promises ultimately point. Jesus is going to sit on David's throne as one much greater than Solomon. Well, we want to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So in closing, let's consider four possible applications. Number one, count the high price of sin and guard against compromise when things seem to be going well. Solomon is a warning to us of the danger of disobedience, right? There may be some Solomon in us too, so count the high price of sin and guard against compromise when things seem to be going well. Secondly, note the huge influence that our spouses have on our lives. So if you're single, choose wisely, and if you're married, help each other, be godly. Note the huge influence that our spouses have on our lives. Thirdly, seek the Lord with our whole life, including in our older years, right? Check our hearts to see where our affections are. are. Are we walking closely with the Lord or are we drifting? Unlike Solomon, right? We want to finish strong. So when you're tempted, count the high price of sin and call on God. Seek the Lord our whole life, including our older years. And fourth and finally, thank God for sending Jesus as the King of Kings, God's affliction of the offspring of David was not forever, chapter 11, verse 39, because Jesus is the son of David who sits on David's throne forever. He's one greater than Solomon. He's a king who always did what pleased his father in heaven, always. Thank God for sending Jesus as the king of kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that's so rich and instructs us in your ways. We praise you for the unmatched wisdom you gave to Solomon. And we praise you that when Solomon was foolish and, and sinful, that you put that on display as a warning to us of the danger of disobedience. We know that as a holy God, you rightly punish sin. And we thank you that Jesus has borne that punishment in the place of all who would believe in and follow him. 
Lord, we're, we're always disappointed at some level in human leaders like Solomon who let us down. But you, Lord, never let us down. When we're faithless, you remain faithful. We praise you for your supreme wisdom and love and mercy in sending Jesus as our King of kings and Lord of lords. All this we pray in his name, the name above all names. Amen.